some of what the play does is tie the is say that there is there's not much of a division between the way that you pursue your dream and what your dream is. Hello again, and welcome to No Script. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we are coming at you again with another conversation about theater's best scripts. Today we are talking about A Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. Very, very, very famous play. If you have any theater education, you almost undoubtedly read this play at some point. Many of you have probably seen the famous movie with Sidney Poitier, and it's a privilege to be able to talk about it this morning. It's yes, not indeed. actually morning, so I don't. It, it doesn't. You, you'll hear this in the <laughs> afternoon, and nor is it morning when we're recording. So <laughs> that was like a default, I guess, right. in, in in my muscle memory. The, yeah, the overarching theme of morning. There you uh, go. We're going to be talking about morning today. The dawning <laughs> for of this no particular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> So, um, A Raisin in the Sun, yeah, this play was written by Lorraine Hansberry. It premiered on Broadway. My understanding is that it toured for a while. It was a fairly tough play to get going. Um, If you've read the script, you know that it's an all-African-American cast, save one character. And this was in the 50s when the play premiered. So to get a play like that, get the funding for it, get a space to do it, was a tough thing. Um, Producer Philip Rose was really the guy behind getting the money to launch what, you know, ends up being this famous, well-received, you know, amazing play of theater history. Um, But my understanding is that it toured a little bit before it actually then premiered on Broadway at the Barrymore Theater in 1959. Um, It transferred around and played at a couple different Broadway theaters uh, with Sidney Poitier in the leading role of Walter Younger. Interestingly, it was the first... um, play by an African-American playwright to be premiered on Broadway and the first play by an African-American director to premiere on Broadway. So that's a pretty big deal in the scope of theater history. And it, um, you know, it, it, there's some questions in the reviews of it as it came out about whether this is a play that has universal themes or if it's more particular to the African-American experience. Um, but, it, you know, to this day, there are productions of it done and it, it did go out on tour then on a Broadway tour after that production back in 1959. Um, it went on to be played, you know, all over. Um, it also transferred to London. There's also, uh, as I've said, the the famous film from 1961 with Sidney Poitier. The other, another kind of cool bit of trivia from this as well was uh, uh, Hansbury, having written this play, received the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for the best play of the year. And uh, she was the first African-American playwright to win that award. Um, so this is this is a very important piece of theatrical history, a, ver- a play that winds up in a lot of different anthologies and and uh, classes, college classes, uh, and conversation areas. So we're very happy to add our voice to that conversation as well. Um, as a bit of a way to synopsize this play, as we try to do at the beginning of these, this play kind of hits the younger family at a at a, a kind of critical turning moment of sorts for them. Uh, the play takes place in uh, Chicago's South Side. There, sometime the 
play specifies sometime between World War II and 1959. Um, I'm sure there are anachronistic ways to do this as well, but that's what the, the initial directions have it as. And it concerns the Younger family, uh, which is made up of Lena Younger, who is the, the let's say, the grandmother of the group. Uh, her two children, Walter Lee Younger and Benita Younger, and Walter's wife, Ruth Younger, and their son, Travis Younger. They are all living in this uh, very small apartment together. Uh, it is a living room slash kitchen space with a bedroom that that Lena Younger shares with her daughter, Benita Younger, and then another room that I think they say was, you know, intended to be kind of a sunroom or a breakfast room or something like that, that Walter and Ruth share. And uh, their son, Walter, sleeps on the couch. So right away... Their son, Travis, sleeps on the couch. Oh, thank you. Yes, their son, Travis, sleeps on the couch. So right away you come into that space, uh, a very uh, crowded familial space. But uh, the the kind of big thing that is happening as you come in is they are receiving the life insurance check from Big Walter, who was... uh, Lena's husband, who is now, has passed away, and they're receiving the money that is the settlement of his life insurance policy. And so we pick up the play kind of in that, that kind of crux of a moment of a lot of money coming in for a family that uh, doesn't have a lot of money to start with, and the choices that ultimately Lena, the, who is referred to often in the play as Mama, uh, has to make with what to do with this money as it comes in. Um, I think we'll probably wind up talking about where we progress with all of that as well. Is there any other uh, kind of story elements that you want to be sure to have as context to start with before we kind of dive in? No, no, I think you nailed it. Um, they, they do refer to Walter a lot as brother, and other characters even outside the family do too. So he goes by brother a lot of the play. Yeah. It, it is interesting, you know, he and his wife, Ruth, live together in this apartment with his mother and his sister. And, and so it's, it's a pretty crowded space. And like Jackson said, their bedroom is like not really a bedroom. It's a one bedroom apartment. And then they've made what is supposed to be a different room into a bedroom. Um, you can sort of imagine what that crowded set even, not even just if you imagine what it's like to live in an apartment like that, imagine what it's like to uh, be that many actors in that small of an apartment space yeah. trying to block and you know maintain good visuals and create good pictures with so many people in this sort of tiny, tiny little space. As long as we're right next to there, I'd like to kind of start with some of the writer's craft kind of comments because this play as opposed to some of the the plays that we've written before or that we've we've talked about before has been written with quite a bit of stage directions in it um it starts off with uh almost an O'Neillian level of description of the space. Right, yeah. This is one of those plays that's from that middle of the century of those 1900s plays. And you get a lot of... It's it's sort of an old way to write scripts, old-fashioned to our senses now, where, you know, when a character comes on stage, they get this lengthy stage direction introduction to who they are and their hopes and dreams and what they look like. And, and every scene is preceded by stage directions of what's on stage and how it all looks and fits together. So, I, yeah, it's a very it, 
it seems, it almost feels anachronistic to read a script like that now because so many of the scripts that come out in the past 30 years don't, don't involve that much. Yeah. And for me, I really enjoy... I enjoy that level, especially as a reader. Um, I we could maybe get into some another podcast could maybe talk about you know how directors feel about that. Um, but it is certain I I very much enjoy getting that sense. You it feels like you especially as a reader are stepping into this this world and are getting painted a scene in front of you. Um, especially with with the the initial setting of the room, we we enter into this space, and it is I, I forget the exact wording of it, but it is this space is lived in. All pretense of uh, formality or something like that is now gone. Yeah, or, or the now... pretense that like the space is used or designed for anything other than living. Now, right. the original stage directions talk about how the furniture and the you know the the design choices for the interior of a home were probably at one time carefully picked and, um, you know, picked specifically for a certain look and a certain feel like you do the interior design of your, you know, your first apartment when you're married. What do, what do we want this to feel like? But long since, it's really ceased to have any of those features and started to just become a functional space. Which has to do with some of the uh, the greater context slash backstory of this play as well. This is Lena Younger and uh, her husband, uh, Big Walters, uh, a first apartment when they got married. This is uh, not not uh, Walter Lee Younger. Uh, we got to figure out a way. No, we'll just call him Walter. This is a uh, Walter. So it's not brother and Ruth Ruth's apartment. Uh, this is this is their his mother's Lena's apartment. And so there's there's this kind of. I think that's important to kind of set up initially, and it certainly has implications towards the end of the play because uh, Lena is very attached and in power in this apartment. Right. She's referred to several times as being the head of the family. And that comes from, you know, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, Jackson, but I would think that the death of Lena's husband, Big Walter, is has got to have been recent. Is that right to you? I mean, if they're just getting the life insurance check, it's clearly some time has gone by. Anybody who's dealt with that kind of stuff, I would guess even back then, it's a lot of bureaucratic nonsense. So it, it probably takes a while, but it's not like he died 10 years ago, I would think. Do you agree with that? I, I, I would agree with that. I think it is most likely a situation of months or years. I think not, maybe not years, but a year-ish, I'm guessing. There is some mention of what we had to go through to get this money, um, and not and and there there's two actually different mentions of that. One, a, a good chunk of it seems to be uh, Lena talking about what she and Walter had to live through, and this is the reward for that. But there is also a moment where someone refers to we've waited so long for this, or we've we've worked so hard to be sure to get this. Right, and the other money. thing is that the characters who aren't the family who come into the apartment. They don't offer like they're still not at a point of grief where they offer yeah. their condolences. It's not like everybody walks through the door and goes, "I'm so sorry to hear about Big Walter." Uh, you know how terrible. So the, enough time has passed that that being the topic of conversation, that the fact that he died has gone by. But it is also still recent enough that they're only now getting the life insurance check. So you can imagine in the dynamics of the house prior to this event of Big Walter's death, what the dynamics really were was Big Walter and Lena had an apartment that they were letting their adult children and their adult children's children. 
still live in the apartment. So that, you know, the, the sense of this play sometimes feels like uh, brother, younger Walter, and his wife have an apartment that they let grandma live in, which is not right. And it's important to remember that in the power dynamics of the play. Yeah. And let's talk just a little bit about the power dynamics, as long as we're kind of uh, hovering around that right now, because this is a play with uh, five, let's say, really strong candidates for <laughs> for the, the main point of view of the play. The, these are five people with a really strong motives and strong opinions as to what is going to happen, and they are condensed into a tiny little apartment. So how do, how do you see kind of the power play happening, really, from the first scene? On. Right. So the main opponents in what is the um, the the main maybe power trades of the play, I think, are between Lena, Grandma, and brother Walter Younger, Younger Walter. Um, they sort of battle back and forth about really who's going to be the head of the family is one of the things that is determined a lot, and several times throughout the play brother talks about well you're you're still the head of the family you just choose whatever you want for the rest of us and we just go along with it because you're supposed to be in charge or whatever and then late in the play one of the things that happens is that lena then understands and or 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 passes the buck a little bit and says look now you're the one who's got to lead this family forward you need to step up and take ownership of that interestingly when the play was first premiering one of the things that i learned in the little bit of research i did was that there was quite a bit of debate among the original production team about whose story this was supposed to be in the end, they cast Sidney Poitier, and the the versions of Raisin in the Sun that we know that you might have seen mostly center around the son, Walter. But I think that there's a pretty good argument to be made that it, that at least a lot of the play is Lena's story. This is a story of a woman who has lost her husband and is now in a new place in her life where something can happen that is different than all these dreams she's had that have failed. And possibly... She is able, uh, many characters, at least, at least uh, brother and Lena see this money that is coming in as a way to push for that dream one more time. And uh, they, they finally have all the, the, the ability and just the money to try to make some of these things happen. And so they, they come to head, heads against each other when... Let's let's get into a little bit. Let's let's be specific about what the different dreams are at this point. Um, I did want to read as well the uh, as we get into this section of dreams. This play, uh, "A Raisin in the Sun," the title is from a Langston Hughes poem that was uh, that is clear that it is <laughs> um, representative of what the play is talking about. And so I did want to read it real quick just to kind of give the context It's actually attached to the play in my, in my anthology version of the play. It's the first thing you read. Um, so I'm just going to read it real quick. This is Harlem, a dream deferred by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? So certainly Hansberry has referenced this poem and, and its nature of dreams. And I think we see a couple different versions of this dream 
um, de- well, progressing, maybe decaying. We can get into that. Well, um, definitely one of the dreams that has decayed is Lena, Grandma's dream of ever leaving this apartment. She talks about, and we've mentioned that this is the apartment she and Big Walter moved into when they were first married. This is the kind of place, you know, when my wife and I were first married, we got an apartment. And now we've been able and been blessed enough in our life to now be living in a house. And that's the kind of dream that Lena talks about wanting. She and Walter were only planning to live in, Big Walter, were only planning to live in this house for like a year. And now she is an old woman and her two adult children and her grandchild are forced to live in this little apartment together. And so that dream occupies a lot of the sort of core of the play because what Lena wants to do with the money is put a down payment on a house and take the family and move into a house to step up from this crappy little apartment where Travis, you know, the grandchild sleeps on a pull-out couch or maybe not even on a pull-out couch. It's just a couch. He just sleeps on a couch and they don't, you know, and grandma has to share a bedroom with her, with her daughter. And the other bedroom is not even a real bedroom. And there's only one window and there's no garden. And so that is her sort of forward momentum of a dream that she has that has been uh, not, not dying, but like the poem from Langston Hughes, deferred at least for a while, put off. Yeah. And then Walter's dream that he is, uh, pursuing is kind of a version of the American dream, but something else as well. He is pursuing this, um, this mirage of success and that he sees people all around him in Chicago. He drives, uh, he's a chauffeur for a family. I believe he's a, a one family chauffeur. And, um, so he drives all around and he sees people making business deals and he wants to be a part of that. And so he is trying in the context, in this moment of the play, he is trying to go into business with some acquaintances of his and open up a liquor store. So he needs to get the building, which he talks about as an initial, an initial investment, and he needs to get the license for uh, to sell liquor. And he talks about the need to bribe people to get that process moving faster. So... He sees this money coming in as a way to jump on this opportunity that he feels like he has been unable to achieve due to his lack of uh, money, but also lack of support from people around him as well. And then the other, there's other characters that really have sort of central dreams of the play as well. Benita, the daughter of Lena, she is wanting, she wants to be a doctor. And she's really the first one of the family to want to achieve something like that in her career, something as lofty as that and expensive as that, going to medical school, etc. And one of the strong arguments, I think, for Lena's character maybe being the central the central character of the play, maybe it's a lot of her journey, is that though a lot of attention is paid to Walter's particular dream um, and his particular plot points, I think it's a lot because he has some really good speeches and he's a, a real passionate character. However, I mean, without having to, without sitting down and actually counting lines, I would say that an almost equal amount of time is paid to Benita's sort of identity crisis of being a young African-American woman at living at that time in history in the 50s and early 60s. I'd agree, yeah. And so... 
you know, one way to look at the play is Lena has is trying to get the is trying to make this family better, move out of the crappy places where all their dreams are dying and nothing is working. But she has two strong-willed children who are both pulling against her in one direction or another, trying to make other things happen. And in that in that imagining of the play, Walter is not the central figure. He's one of the two almost antagonists pulling against this older woman, you know, struggling to make what she knows is the things better for her family. Yeah, trying to complete the 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 maybe the dream, but certainly the intent of her and her husband, which was to, you know, make make a a better life for their kids. She talks about that at one point uh, in one of Walter's rants. She talks about how she, despite all of this stuff he's getting into, she still loves him and she she wants to push for this thing. She just, and, and part of her conflict is she doesn't want the liquor store idea. She doesn't want to be responsible for, she says, yes, people are going to drink, but if I'm supplying them, if my money is supplying them with the option to drink, I don't want that on my conscience. So she and, is opposed. Yeah, it's actually is a great line. She's like, I, I don't need that on my conscience this late in life. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. like yeah. judgment day is coming for me and I don't want to <laughs> be responsible for a liquor store. Right, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, you have you have these people very at odds. You have, um, and I, I, I like... And this was the struggle for me in in trying to uh, nail down Walter as the, you know, the quote unquote main character in this, because certainly a lot of the play's progression has to do with him. But I agree. Benita has a huge I, I mean, I'd almost argue that a good portion of her scenes dominate <laughs> at least her perspective yeah, dominates she, the scenes. She's got the more play. stage time than him. Almost yeah. certainly. You know, mm-hmm. and that that's not everything, of course, but I think it's a lot. And she has a lot of time to play the protagonist against which her children are the antagonists, weirdly, um, even though they benefit a lot from what she is trying to do. Now, one of the reasons, one of the stronger arguments for Walter as the protagonist, the central character, the main character, whatever, is that he as a character really comes to a, a change at the end of the play. His internal journey really amounts to something. And at the end of the play, he he leaves the play a different man than he started it. Um, that That is not as true for Lena, um, although, you know, her... She, although she does have one, an internal change, an internal journey. It's not like Walter's uh, brothers. And, and his journey is um, – it's really obvious. It's really – it's tied to the climax of the play. Um, you know, once once he as a person has made a change and made a decision, that the play now moves into denouement. And so – there's there's something there's a lot to be said there for then him really occupying that central plot that that character who drives the center of the plot so let's talk a little bit bit about that then let's talk about let's let's kind of get get into the the fine details of what walter's uh journey and progression is throughout this play um he is you know, he comes into the first scene we have with Walter. He's 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 getting up late 
for he is he's being yelled at by Ruth to get up for work. Uh, there's some kind of fun drama about uh, sharing the the uh, the the bathroom and the shower with the neighbors it's like an exterior bathroom yeah so they like have to balance who gets it when with the neighbors stuff like that Mm -hmm. and he kind of he he hits the play right away complaining a lot um he is he seems to be lamenting his position in life he's in his 30s and he hasn't become what he wanted to be but then he is also blaming a lot of people he has this kind of almost uh maybe not dated but um mm, older style of desire for this like male chauvinistic relationship with the women in his life he he complains loudly about they're not supporting him and and really no one in the house is is having it like <laughs> like you just <laughs> We're not going to do that. Sorry, man. Right. Uh, it, it, I, it probably wasn't as, you know, it probably doesn't strike the ear as much as when it when the play was originally written as it does now, his particular attitudes about women. But interestingly, the women kick back at him yeah. for what for what are, you know, especially nowadays, some pretty uh, horrifying ideas about what marriage <laughs> right. would be like. like. Like he does not think it is worthwhile for Beneatha to be a doctor. He says, mm. you should just marry somebody rich. Why you got to go out and be a doctor? And in fact, I believe at one point he says, just marry somebody and go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he comes in and he's not – he looks He looks like someone in the midst of a crisis when he comes on. And he is He is reaching for things. He is He is kind of stretching too far for this this dream of his. And maybe let's let's talk about that for just a second as we're in the middle of this. How do you think the – I think it's the American dream, um, but really just the dream of prosperity maybe or success. But how do you think the American dream rears its head in this play? It's a little bit different in my opinion, but I'd love to hear your – as as like many of the classic plays treat it. How, how do you think that it, it winds up coming around? Yeah. I mean what what the younger Walter wants is to – start his own business to, uh, you know, to come from what is essentially nothing, poverty, which they mentioned several times in the play that they're in poverty, and to then grow himself, to pull himself up by his own bootstraps through hard work and building his own business into, you know, he imagines one day being the the executive of a large company and dealing with meetings and things that go wrong and boards and all this other stuff. And so that absent from some of absent from the rest of the play, that is a fairly common description of the American dream to especially the idea of starting your own business, coming from nothing and growing into wealth and prosperity and power. What is interesting for Walter is that the 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 inciting incident for this dream to be possible is not his own hard work. It is the death of his father. He, yeah. you know, he did not earn that money, and that comes up several times in his conversations. And actually, it comes up more in conversations that other people have about the money. Is yes. that you know, Benita and Walter both have ideas of how they want that money to be used, and Lena makes the point. Some other characters make the point that that's not your money. You didn't earn it. My Lena says, you know, my husband 
toiled and sweated and came home late and worked a job he hated for a long, long time, and this is what has come out of it. And she wants it to benefit them, but it's not money that they earned and worked for. So unlike the sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps mentality of, you know, sort of American success stories, Walters starts by somebody else pulling him up and then getting a chance to go out and start. I think that there is also kind of unconventionally... There isn't as much uh, disillusionment of the American dream in this play. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Death of a Salesman as, as the, the kind of counter for it. You see the American dream deteriorate and, and be um, disempowered, maybe. Um, but this one, it is still, like, it is the, the noble pursuit, the trying to just get a house and have your own four walls and have some level of family stability. Like it is pursued throughout and how you get there seems well, to be the conflict as opposed to Lena's that you get version there. of that, of getting your own house, having your own four walls. And she has that kind of, you know, again, sort of middle 20th century idea about this is, you know, this is going to be ours. We're going to have our own house that is this really we own and we can decide about that sort of striving for that, that occupies a lot of the literature from that period in history. Um, her dream, I totally agree, is this sort of noble pursuit of that. And, and uh, you know, this money has come to her because her and her husband have worked and worked and worked to someday achieve this dream. It was deferred, like the poem. It happened much later than they had ever hoped, but it did happen. Interestingly, I, Walter's, his dream does not seem as noble a pursuit. Um, he, partially because he's... Fairly, uh, he's fairly cruel as a person in a lot of his scenes. Um, so the choice, you know, the the choice of a person to pursue a quote American dream, the decision that Lorraine Hansberry made about her character to do that, at least in this part, was that this character was not going to be a nice guy a lot of the time. Um, he, like you've said, Jackson, he complains a lot. He re- he does a lot of putting his problems off on other people. Um, he's violent, he's, and, you know, he's really passionate. And the other way that he, you know, he wants to do it is to make, um, is to make a risky investment, which is how a lot of American dreams start. So that's one thing. But in order to get that, in order to get their liquor license, he needs to basically pay off politicians. So that's part of the plan too, is not the sort of honest hard work like Lena and her husband, but his plan involves paying off government officials and starting a liquor store, which there's some morality and ethical choices and considerations in that too because Walter's drunk for a lot of the play and so there's something to be said about you know what what is what is opening a liquor store providing for is it just providing for more drunk Walters in the world to verbally and maybe sometimes physically abuse their families yeah i think i think too though what you're what you're describing is the problems you're having in, is with how he's pursuing it i don't know that the play is necessarily saying that his his uh, hope, his the dream itself of success, and uh, and uh, having ha- coming home to his house with a, you know a car with you know black wall tire- tires and stuff like that, and being able to send his son to college and any college he wants. I don't think the play is saying that that is a a, a dream that should not be 
pursued necessarily. Um, but yeah, rather that I, I would probably agree with that. I, I wonder if though some of what the play does is tie the is say that there is there's not much of a division between the way that you pursue your dream and what your dream is because ultimately Walter doesn't get his. Mm, I mean, yeah. the play does not end with him winning. He he, he and, and he gets cheated out of all of his money, you know. He loses his ability to pursue this liquor store in the way that he wanted. And not only does he lose it, but he gets cheated in a similar way that he wanted to cheat the system and pay yeah. off politicians to get his liquor license. Whereas mm-hmm. Lena's dream, this sort of quiet, hardworking, longstanding, patient pursuit of her own house is one that is ultimately rewarded. And it's partially rewarded because she chooses to give up that power in decision making. It's it's rewarded because she decides that if she's really doing this for someone else, that 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 someone else should have a say in what happens, which is some of the power tension of the play is Walter's upset that he doesn't have a say in what happens. So in the climax of the scene, Lena says, you know what, Walter, you negotiate with this guy. You decide mm-hmm. what's going to happen now. It's your decision. And yes. And so that pursuit ultimately pays off. Um does the play say that it's wrong for Walter to want to have his own business? No, but it does ultimately. Uh, he does what Lane Hansberry does is ultimately not reward him for his uh, his ignoble pursuits. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The the kind of shady way of of of, of accomplishing it, and the moment of of uh, him kind of coming into the power that Lena is giving to him. Is 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 in itself the the reward of that of that um, of Lena's pursuits because it's not just that she wants a house alone she wants her family to be well and uh, and to to enable that as best she can right. and she does actually in, that in, in their new house she's still Lena is still going to have to share a bedroom. So yeah. it's not like – I mean the, the house will be better than the apartment in a lot of ways. But it's not like she ended up with her own master suite and she's now her life is going to be so much better. But what she did is she got a bedroom for Travis and that's a big deal. And Walter and Ruth don't have to share what is, amounts to a little closet for their bedroom and that's a big deal. Um, and so – a lot of her dream is really about the people that she wants. It's about her children. It's about someone else. And a lot of Walter's dream seems to be about him. Uh, do we want to talk just a little bit about that That kind of I, – I do want to get to some of these other characters because there is – this play is filled with wonderful points of view and and lots of things that these other characters say. There's like – Eight other characters that we've barely even talked about yet, but we should while while we're right here at the end of the play, essentially that w- that we're talking about, um, we should talk a little bit about that conflict at the end of the play that they have. Um, Lena, in in denying initially denying brother uh, young Walter the uh, the desire to buy a liquor store, goes out and buys a house in Clybourne Park, which is a an all white neighborhood in 1959, I think I said Chicago, and uh, the the house was open. It was a better price than any of the other houses that she could find, and so she buys it. And this is kind of a big deal within the context of this play. It's it has a lot to say about uh, the gentrification of of Chicago and the different districts that it was in at the time. And um, so they're 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 getting ready to move. It's like 
the day that they're going to move or the day before they're going to move to this new house in Clybourne Park and a representative comes and offers them he has this uh what must be an incredibly awkward scene to watch on stage this kind of representative from the neighborhood council of Clybourne Park coming to talk around saying they don't want an African-American family living in their neighborhood. Yeah, uh, he does a lot of sort of spinning, like, um, we, we all we need to do, people who have disagreements, we just need to sit down and talk to each other more and understand other people's point of view, and then our problems will be solved. Well, then it ends up that his and his neighborhood's point of view is, we don't want you living in our neighborhood. Yeah. So it's like, well, great. That's really a point of view we want to sit down and listen to. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So initially they tell him off and they get rid of him and um and they they kind of laugh about it almost. They're joking about it and then there's this this other weird scene that comes in and uh th- their neighbor comes in and talks about how different white neighborhoods are bombing houses of African Americans who are moving into the area and there's some tension and stakes being raised there. But then uh there's the scene where Lena gives young Walter, the money, all of the rest of the money. It turns out she only put down 3500 on the house of the 10000 available. She still has 6500 left. She tells him to put aside a big chunk of it, I think 3000 for beneath his college expenses, but then do what he would with the rest of it to try to accomplish, to lead the family, essentially. And try to yeah, accomplish. Yeah, and this is sort of her first attempt to, and I think she even says it, to allow him to be head of the family. Yep. She says, This money's yours now. You're responsible. You need to put some money aside to take care of Benita. Then the rest of it is yours to decide. It's your money now. You're the head of this family now. But what young Walter does is he goes out and, like he was planning to, invests money in this fairly risky business enterprise of a liquor store. Well, he doesn't set aside the money like he was supposed to. He takes all of the rest of it, even the money that's supposed to be for Benita, and gives it all to an acquaintance of his that Ruth has told him time and time again is a no-good guy, is a good cheater, is not going to be helpful. He gives it all to that guy and unfortunately learns late in the play that the other guys run off with the money. So that's $6,500, which is even a lot of money to me nowadays to just lose, which must have seemed like all the money in the world at that time is gone, just lost to a cheater. So Walter's first, first chance to be head of the family, first decision is an incredibly, horribly bad decision. That ends up with all of this money that's supposed to be for beneath his college education that he's supposed to use to sort of get what he needs to get out of life, whatever he's missing that's causing him to be so agitated, um, supposed to get that back with this money. It's all gone. So now the family's got a problem because now they're in more dire financial situations than they were before. And the question of whether they can actually continue to pay for this house because all they've paid is the down payment. So they still owe the rest of the mortgage. Whether they can continue to make the monthly payments is in question. So now Walter's bad decision has cost the family even the chance to move into this house potentially. So So they call up Well, Walter uh, does, not they. Thank you, yes. Walter calls up Carl Lindner, who is the representative from the neighborhood committee at Clybourne Park, and he says he's going to he's gonna deal with him. Um he's going to there's this there's this really heart wrenching 
uh, scene both to read and to watch where he breaks down essentially and says he's going to he's going to deal with the man and um and uh so he shows up Lind Lindner shows up to the apartment and and starts getting out the forms uh he's I don't know if I said this specifically before but he has offered to pay them more than they've put down he's offered to pay them the whole price of the house so they would actually make money right and on... he's got this whole attitude like he's being reasonable like yeah. um you know we're we're just trying to do what's best for everybody don't you guys want to live among your own people wouldn't you be more comfortable everybody would be happier we're off we're generously offering to buy the house for more than it's worth from you all like reasonable racism yeah exactly so he's sat down he's got it already and there's this moment when this is the the kind of the final moment you feel like that if lena gives young walter the choice to either take this offer and sacrifice a lot of pride and mm, well, the, what's the, the right the word that, that I'm the looking family, for? Basically, the whole family is opposed to this idea because the yeah. idea is like Walter is basically using, is justifying the racism of this neighborhood in order to make money. Like he's gone to grovel and say, oh, it's to you're totally right. White people shouldn't have to live with African-American people. There's That's that's a right system and I'm going to lower myself to, uh, to those standards. And the the sort of stakes that the family puts on him is if you do this we're we're bottomed out now we're not only poor but we're we have no self worth we don't even have any self worth there there'll be nothing left for us if you choose to degrade our family and justify this terrible racism just because it's worth some money yep and so it is it is that moment that the the crux or the climax of the play happens where Lena allows him the power to make this decision and he makes it that they are going to move. They're going to continue to move. They're going to move into the house and they're going to deal with the problems associated with it. You don't get the sense that it's all like this is not necessarily going to be a great happy ending to this play, but you get you still have the feeling that something great has been accomplished. Some. Uh, high ground has been achieved for this family and for Walter and for Lena. They, they are moving out of this space and going into a place that still has conflict, but that is the right place for them to be in. They'll work it out. They'll deal with the problems however they come, but they are ultimately in victory in a way as they leave this and, place. And especially Walter is in victory. I think they even say in sort of the denouement of the play – Mama is is Lena is talking to Ruth, her daughter in law, about what has just happened, and she says, "You know, Walter, brother, he came into his manhood today, didn't he? He finally grew up, took responsibility, and said, took the fan, you know, took that head of the family role, and said, this is what is right for the family. This is the right thing to do, regardless of the fact that it's not going to make me money, regardless of the fact that I'm going to have to give up some of my dreams to do it. This is the right thing." And he has made a personal choice to change his life and change the life of the family. And that – so a lot of the victory is sort of a, an interpersonal victory because they're not really better off. I mean right. they do have this house now, but they still are out 6500 bucks. He's still a chauffeur. 
they, and they, and what's been what they've said is that now that he's lost this sixty five hundred dollars, they're all going to have to work really hard. They're all going to have to get a couple more jobs in order to pay the monthly bills on this house. So yep. Life is not made easier, but what has been accomplished is a personal turn. For both Walter and for the family, that that you get the sense that they are all pushing towards something unified at the end of this. There is there is that last moment that... Uh, I, I'm going to leave that last moment. You should read it for that, that very last moment of the scene. There's some really great things that pay off. But I think like that's what I wanted to hit at the end, is that continuation throughout of the theme of Walter... Figuring out what to do in that moment is a huge, huge part of that. Well, and the theme of deferring your dreams, right? Because Walter chose in that moment to defer his own dreams. Absolutely. He was thinking, I mean, his plan, I think, was to grovel, get the neighborhood community to pay them more than the house was worth, and then have money to do what he wanted to do, to try again and have his dream of owning his own business, have the money again and get another chance. But he, in that moment, decides that he will defer that dream in order to pursue the larger, better dream of his family of moving out of this crappy apartment into a place that is their own place. Yep. Let's uh, let's move quickly here to talking about the imagery of the play. Um, there's a lot of great images and um, objects and metaphors that are used throughout the play. One of the more uh, prominent ones is Mama's Lena's plant. She has this plant that's present throughout the whole play. It's described as being kind of a crappy little plant. <laughs> Not pretty, uh, old, maybe dying. Yeah. Um, you imagine like an ivy plant that, you know, one of the ones with the... <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's vine like that wraps around the in pot. A little and, pot. It's yeah. not in great shape, but she loves this thing. And she mm. cares for it and cares for it and cares for it. And she talks about how she wants to get it to spring again. So maybe it's a, you know, it flowers in the spring and then it, it's all worth it. And she tends to it and she's worried about what's going to happen to it in the move. What's your sense of how that object, that image relates to the rest of the play? I think, I mean, of the scenic elements, it is a through line that you must be constantly aware of, especially in, like, fight scenes, because you you get the feeling, like, I got the feeling in this play, you're worried for that poor little plant and what would happen if someone decides to be angry enough to hit it off the table or something like that. It is a representation of the dream that Lena has deferred. She talks a lot about, amongst the things that she wanted when they were looking for a house uh, somewhere in one of the neighborhoods of Chicago, she said, I wanted a little patch of dirt to have a garden. And um, and one of the big gifts that when everyone thinks everything is going well, when when Walter thinks this deal is going through and the house move is happening and before um, the Clybourne Park Neighborhood Committee shows up, they give Mama, Lena, the uh, a, a set of gardening tools. And so it is clearly, though she may not uh, present it as a big a deal as it is. This is, it, I think, it's really representative of her dream, and it it is kind of the the last tether that she kept for a long time to that dream of having, you know, just having a garden, <laughs> having a place to work with plants. Yeah, and. I thought maybe along a different but similar lines that the plant is kind of her physical representation of this family that's not in great shape that is, um, you know, hopefully someday going to flower and bloom, but that Mama Lena tends, cares for, um, 
almost futilely, it seems like sometimes, that there's nothing going to come of it. But she cares and nurtures and works for it in the hopes that one day something good, something flowering and pretty will come of it. What else? What, what, what are some of the other images of the play, Jackson? I think we, we can delve into a little bit of Beneath's storyline a little bit because there's quite a bit of imagery and also uh, symbolism in some of the uh, of her storyline. I think of uh, music, for instance, is a huge deal uh, throughout the play. It's not uh, imagery, but it is uh, symbolic of things. There is uh, uh, jazz music is played quite a bit, but then there is a, a really striking scene where she is given uh, a Nigerian tribal outfit by one of her uh, maybe boyfriends, college friends um, as a gift. Yeah, he is from something Nigeria. like, I don't know, it, she's like dating a couple of men. One yeah, of them yep. <laughs> is this Nigerian, I think he's Nigerian, um, like scholar who has come to America to study and then is going to go back to Nigeria to make the country better. Um, so that's sort of one of her boyfriends. The other boyfriend is sort of a, um, like a, she, I think she calls him like a, like a rich black person that's been rich for a long time. And so it is sort of hoity toity about it and doesn't, doesn't want her to dive too far into sort of like the African culture that is presented to her and want very much wants her to be a trophy wife. Stop talking all the time. There's a, there's a, yeah, wants to take her to the theater and then like come back and make out and is upset that she really wants to talk about these issues of African-American communities and identity that are important to her. And so those two characters are floating around, There's, but then there's the scene well, that— Well, I uh, think that those two characters really are an image in themselves because she they really—Lorraine Hansberry really selected two opposite ends of the pendulum— for Benita to sort of swing between. And, and one of the decisions she has to make through the course of the play is whether she's going to marry, um, let's see, the, the richer boyfriend is named George Merchant, uh, Murchison. We'll call him George. Um, and that's one option. Now, he hasn't proposed or anything, but the question is out there that he probably will at some point. And is, does she want to be with him? And he is rich. He's smart. He's described as being handsome. Um, but he, he but Benita thinks he's kind of an ignorant fool and that he does. Yeah. He's, he doesn't really respect what she wants from her life. He doesn't respect the things that she's concerned about. So there's sort of that one end of the pendulum. The other end of the pendulum is like a cultural a culture totally unlike her own. Somebody from Africa who's a scholar who thinks deeply about things um, but doesn't understand some of the things that she's concerned about because he's of a different culture. Like he doesn't really understand her concern when Walter loses the money. His his response is basically, well, like, was that your money? And Benita mm-hmm. says, well, no, it wasn't really my money. He says, then what, what are you concerned about? You didn't <laughs> lose any money. That is like one of the... Like, it, it could be comedic, but I think it's also one of the more poignant moments in the middle of all these people really concerned, and justifiably so. This is a lot of money involved, and it was lost. Right. Like, like I said, if I lost $6,500 now, I would be upset for months about it. Yeah. And in a time when 50 cents represented the cab fare to work, like just— Right, and like $3,500 was the down payment on a house. Yeah. Exactly. So this is a ton of money that was lost. So they are justifiably upset. But he also he's the one who brings up the theme of how awful is it that someone has to die for 
for this money to come around for this and and for this level of stress to be involved out of money that came from someone's death and it's not really he he brings up that point of the ownership over this money is both is is a burden as well as a blessing in its in its manifestation right so he has that kind of viewpoint of the situation that is outside of what her cultural experience has been so these two men that she's got to decide between who she's going to go with and the, i guess there's a third option which is she might go with neither of them and as sort of a, a, a you know a really strong young black woman that's really an option for her she really could decide to do that because she's not really interested in just being married to somebody f- to be somebody's trophy wife um, and to be married just to be married she wants to be a doctor she has big dreams for her life and the choice of and you know so she's got the one boyfriend that is offering her like robes straight from Nigeria and uh, wants her to dance to tribal music and you know embrace what is her real true like ancestry um, of as a young African American woman and then you have this other person who represents sort of like you could be wealthy and be a trophy wife and not have to, you don't have to worry about anything but I need you to give up your concern of things like the African American identity at that point in history and and, you know, you're, you're feeling that you need to have your own self-identified experience and, and things like that. So there's this pendulum that she swings between of where is she going to go culturally as a young African-American woman? What is she going to do with her dreams of being a doctor? What is she going to do with um, the kind of person and how she – what influences she's going to let have on her decisions about what to make of the, you know, the struggles faced by her community at the time? And so there's a lot of great imagery just in the sort of alternating scenes between, that she has between these two – let's call them boyfriends. Yep. Yep, so there's that imagery. There's the imagery of the apartment itself, which goes through different changes throughout. There, You start in this kind of very, uh, let's say, cluttered space, for lack of a more precise term at the moment. But then there's like a spring cleaning scene where everything is shoved to the side. And then uh, the next scene there uh, have crates full of packing and moving. So you get this like, even more so, this space, this small space filled with really powerful people is in flux and in stress, and, and it just continues to compound throughout that play. Um, the other one that we haven't even mentioned at all is that Ruth is pregnant. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, we have not mentioned that. That's a good point. Yeah, the, <laughs> That's kind of a the big cru- deal. <laughs> a big deal in Act 1 is, is her discovering that she is pregnant and the fear about having a child in this situation and the decision whether or not to keep the child in this situation where they are, you know, kind of... Right. She is revealed to have gone to see, quote-unquote, a woman who will... give an abortion if that's what Ruth decides to do. And so that's one of the big questions, especially for the middle part of the play too, is what is Ruth going to do with this baby? Because they live in this tiny apartment. There's nowhere for this baby to go. They don't have the money to feed another mouth. They don't have the space for the baby. They don't have the, you know, the stress level in their life to add another stress on top of it. So there's a lot of talk and concern about that. And that baby in itself is an image, right? Because is there is this life going to be lived or destroyed? Is the is that there's a central question there about it's not about a dream, but it's it's life and death stakes. Hmm. Yeah, and um, let's see what else. What other? 
There's the bed. I don't. I don't know exactly. But like, there's a bed in the middle of the room. Right. I the don't know. Couch if really that Travis sleeps on the pullout couch. That is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I kind of like as I imagined it. I imagined the pullout couch. But then I realized I watched a couple of clips from the movie, and the kid was just sleeping on the couch. And I realized that it mm. never said pullout couch. That was just me imagining like what if someone was like, "You're gonna sleep on the couch tonight." I'd be like, "Oh, it's a pullout couch." Sure, but, sure. But it's really just there is a couch. That. There's a totally different. I mean, that's just sort of outside of my cultural experience. Mm-hmm. There is the line that she that the uh, Lena talks about him making making the sheets on his bed or something like that. That are yeah. He like kinda, I think that what they imagine is that he they lay they put sheets over the cushions yeah. and make it up like a bed. And then in the morning he's supposed to put it all back together like a couch. So they can use right. it as a couch during the day. Hmm. So yeah, it's like very varying between I think I think that would be an image that would be really fun to see is watching the kind of clutter in act 1 and then progressing through. I think that that's a very rich opportunity for a scene designer too and a props manager to try to indicate what is happening in their lives via the setting and this and the clutter as well. Right. Another image that I thought of that's really prominent in the play is the bathroom. Because like we've talked about, they share an exterior bathroom with at least one other family on their floor. And, you know, there's something that feels really uh, like kind of icky about the idea of like sharing this most private space. You know, it's like it's your bathroom at home. It's not like a public bathroom or bathroom at a business. This is like your home bathroom where it's like such a private space to then be forced to share with another family. So that it adds this extra image and layer of the family being um, not just trapped in this little apartment, but trapped without any privacy. You know, there's not any real bedrooms except for the just the one bedroom that is shared between a mother and a daughter, not even between siblings. They, they don't have their own bathroom space. And in fact, they're constantly having to sprint off whenever the bathroom is open to be able to use it, which is like, you know, it's, it's your home bathroom. You should be able to use it when you need to use it. And instead, they have to play this cat and mouse game. It feels it makes them feel more and more like their lives are out of control. And that is kind of brought up in one of the lines that Lena says to uh, young Walter is that it's dangerous when you don't have when you are not able to find peace at home. And I think that is one of the conflicting one of the attributable factors to it. Is is that they have he, Walter and really all of them have very little control and peace at home, and that adds to the frenetic um, tension of the family. Well, we're getting along towards the end here. Is there anything else at the end? We gotta we gotta wrap up. There's so much in this play. It's it's a just a masterwork, a really deep play, a lot of great characters. I feel like there was there was more that we could have hit on, but we're just there's just so much. I don't know what else we could have could have tailored into there. Yeah, we as always, we only we you know, we try to fit these into about an hour. So we've only got an hour to cover what yeah. is actually a pretty long play. We realized as we were reading it again. Yeah. <laughs> and it just has a lot of stuff in it, characters, discussions. That you know, there's a whole 
you know, content-wise, there's a whole thing to be said about the African commu- American community at that time and struggles of civil rights and stuff. You know, we we try to focus in on sort of dramatically what's happening between the characters, the power structures, the images, the way the playwright uses things like that to accomplish their goals. Um, but you know, in your studies, if you're a theater student, in your life, if you're somebody who just likes plays, um, this play has a lot to say. And it's well worth reading and diving into. We covered, as we usually do, we only covered a very small percentage of what really is in this play. Yes, indeed. But if you have something else to add to the conversation, if you've read this play, if this play is important to you, if you just notice things that we didn't notice, we'd love to continue the conversation with you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email at noscriptpodcast at gmail.com or in a coffee shop if you're next to us. We would love to keep having this conversation with you. Uh, We like talking about plays and we'd love to, you know, continue the conversation into broader areas as well. If you like this conversation, if you've liked some of our other conversations, do us a favor and share this on your social media page. We'd love to have as many people involved in these conversations as we possibly can. It also does us a great help if you'd be willing to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts um, as we continue to build our online presence. We're hoping, you know, there's just there's not a lot of podcasts out there that, that are just about plays. Um, because you don't really, it's hard to do that because you you don't get to see a play unless you're in the area where the play is being produced. But scripts are a great way to do that. We love doing it. We hope you do too. Yes, indeed. So until next week, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script the Podcast. See ya. See ya.